Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenna B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 107th episode of the Nauticast titled Brotherly Love, Part 2, an analysis of A Clash of Kings Catlin 3, in which the rightful king of Westeros stares down a selfish usurper brother. Wait, which is which? Are you fucking serious? How <laughs> dare you? How dare you? I had you? to do it. I had to do it, Jeff. Forgive me. I will think about it. I mean, I will, you know, as Stannis will say in A Clash of Kings, Davos 2, forgiven, not forgotten, sir. Forgiven. Mm, not you are forgotten. not without mercy. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council on Patreon our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbishop June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the High Breeder Priest, Lord Jacob says it to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sosadelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Jell of Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master absolutely positively not serving as a spy for several unnamed high lords and ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Holliver, the waiter for T-Wild. A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Sean Wallace Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bonnie Hunter of the North, Sir Veor, Chief of the Parties of the Frozen Wastes, and Lord Peter. Thank you to our counselors very, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we see in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novels, histories, interviews, the Winds Winners, Temple Chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Frank B., our small council king's justice, who asks, Can you find Amen Brothers detail the possibility that Renly is actually Robert's bastard? It's tinfoil, but the more I look at it, the more compelled to infect other people with this brainworm. And who better than your fine listeners? Okay, look. I also love this theory. It's not true. It's not remotely true. There is precisely zero evidence for it, but I love it anyway just because of the character dynamics within the Baratheons that I already love that would be made all the worse and thus all the better uh, because of this theory. So the idea is that, like, you know, Renly, he does look exactly like Robert, right? Mm-hmm. Like, suspiciously exactly like Robert, the way Gendry and Edric Storm look exactly like Robert. And Renly, there's quite a noticeable age gap between him and Robert and Stannis. What's the, what's the deal there, Stefan and Cassandra? Now, there is the theory, which I actually like, that Renly was an attempt on Stefan and Cassandra's part to make a bride for Rhaegar or, uh, or Viserys, you know, one of those. But mm, yeah, that, that, that didn't work out. 
But I, I love the idea that what's actually going on there is the reason there's a huge age gap, the reason Robert and Renly look exactly alike, is that Renly was the first of Robert's many bastards. And rather than, <laughs> you know, deal with some you know, embarrassment, maybe the, the mother was someone who was married or someone who was a noble, someone in the family, they, the Stefan and Cassandra agreed to raise Renly as their own, as, as a true-born Baratheon. And the reason I love that is because... It would make him even more of a usurper against Stannis in some ways, because he's a bastard, not who he says he is. But on the other hand, it would make him Robert's son, which Joffrey isn't. So he kind of would be the rightful king in a Damon oh, Blackfire-y no. kind of way. So again, not true, but I just I love it because of how it makes the, the already great character dynamics between these family members even better. So what do you think of this nonsense theory, sir? I mean, it's bullshit, but that's okay. It's I love this theory too, but, I, but I'm going to take it in a metaphorical direction because that's the only way that I can love this theory. And that is Renly is exactly Robert's bastard in the, in the narrative, right? He is, he is the image of Robert without any of the extraordinarily limited amount of substance that Robert Baratheon had, which he had some. He had to have mm -hmm. a, li a little bit of something. At least his, his rebellion was justified. But all of that kind of Empty charm is a bastardized version of Robert's true charm. He, Robert actually, I, I think, typically and actually likes people. Renly, I think, probably does not actually like a whole lot of people. It's more like this kind of feigned form of charm that's kind of empty and yeah. sociopathic. He likes you know? he likes to be liked. Exactly. He doesn't necessarily like other people. I, I think that's, that's an excellent distinction. And of course, we're going to get into this in the main episode. But yeah, Robert... Renly is just the image of Robert in a way that kind of works as being a bastard, as, as being his son, as being his ghost in the way right. we're talking about. So, so metaphorically, yes, this is, this is absolutely the case, even if though it's, it's not literally true. So thank you, I suppose, to Frank for the question. <laughs> if you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can find 26 bonus of Song of Ice and Fire episodes, 7 Fever Dream chapter-by-chapter -chapter episodes, show notes, bonus posts, and more. And if you didn't catch it last week, our, our new Patreon episode, Snowmen, Analyzing the Grand Northern Conspiracy Theory, is out for all our poor fellow and above patrons. Our next Patreon episode, our full analysis of Renly Baratheon himself, <laughs> we will be doing as a live cast and releasing to everyone after that on our regular podcast feed. Absolutely. Can't wait for that Patreon special episode. And please check out the this, this Grand Northern Conspiracy episode if you're one of our patrons. It's a really, really good one. But enough about Patreon for now. Let's turn our attention back to Catelyn's third chapter to Clash of Kings. When we last checked in with our lady, Catelyn Stark, she had world-built Storm's End and had a lovely, lovely chat with King Stannis Baratheon. But before I say, and let's get into this synopsis, we're going to actually going to talk about, we're going to introduce someone, a brand new character for this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to present Renly Baratheon. You shouldn't have, really. So, with that, let's pick up where we last left off before we introduce Lord Renly in this synopsis. Spoken word, theater, both of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn Three. Kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies. And brothers, a cheerful voice called out behind her. Wait. Whose voice is that? Oh, ha, hi, Emmett. Hi, Renly. Thanks for joining in with us today. Catelyn practically side-eyes Renly as he rides up, noticing how fly he looks with his crown of golden rose, rubies, diamonds in his sword belt, gold and emeralds around his neck. Dude is fucking bedazzled. Is that the right word? Alongside Renly is Brienne holding the Baratheon banner, but the visor on her helmet obscures her face. Nice. Extremely progressive of you, Renly. Lord Renly. King Renly. Can that truly be you, Stannis? Stannis frown. Who else could it be? Renly gave an easy shrug. When I saw that standard, I could not be certain. Whose banner do you bear? My own. The red-clad priestess spoke up. 
The king has taken for his sigil the fiery heart of the Lord of Light. Renly seemed amused by that. All for the good. If we both use the same banner, the battle will be terribly confused. Catelyn said, let us hope that there will be no battle. We three share a common foe who would destroy us all. Stannis studied her unsmiling. The Iron Throne is mine by rights. All those who die there are my foes. The whole of the realm denies it, brother, said Renly. Old men deny it with their death rattle, and unborn children deny it in their mother's wombs. They deny it in Dorn, and they deny it on the wall. No one wants you for their king. Sorry. Stanish clenched his jaw, his face taut. I swore that I would never treat with you while you wore your traitor's crown. Would that I kept to that vow. Catelyn declares all of this folly and tells everyone that, guys, we should really just work together against the Lancers just like my son is doing. Guys? Guys? But Renly dismisses her, and Stannis tells Renly to make his proposals or he's fucking gone. Very well, said Renly. I propose that you dismount, bend your knee, and swear me your allegiance. Stannis choked back rage. That you shall never have. You served Robert. Why not me? Robert was my elder brother. You were the younger. Younger, bolder, and far more comely. And a thief and a usurper besides. Renly shrugged. The Targaryens called Robert usurper. He seemed able to bear the shame. So shall I. This will not do, Catelyn thought. Listen to yourselves. If you were sons of mine, I would bang your heads together and lock you in a bedchamber until you remembered that you were brothers. Stannis frowned, always frowning at her. You presume too much, Lady Stark. I am the rightful king and your son no less a traitor than my brother here. His day will come as well. The naked threat fanned her fury. You are free to name others traitor and usurper, my lord, yet how are you any different? You say that you alone are the rightful king, yet it seems to me that Robert had two sons. By all the laws of the Seven Kingdoms, Prince Joffrey is his rightful heir, and Tommen after him. And we are all traitors, however good our reasons. Renly laughs like a wild-ass hyena and says that Catelyn hasn't had the chance to read Stannis' letter about the incest of the true parish of Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. Um, Renly, maybe that's because you're a fucking dick and never shared the letter? I wonder why. Hmm. And this leaves Catelyn speechless. She starts to trying to put the pieces together. Meanwhile, the boys get back to what they do best. Bickering. Isn't that a sweet story, my lady? Renly asked. I was camped at Horn Hill when Lord Tarly received his letter, and I must say it took my breath away. He smiled at his brother. I had never suspected you were so clever, Stannis. Were it only true... You would indeed be Robert's heir. Were it true, you'd name me a liar. Can you prove any word of this fable? Stannis ground his teeth. Robert could not have known, Catelyn thought, or Cersei would have lost her head in an instant. Lord Stannis, she asked, if you knew the queen to be guilty of such monstrous crimes, why did you keep silent? I did not keep silent, Stannis declared. I brought my suspicions to John Arryn. Rather than your own brother? My brother's regard for me was never more than dutiful. For me, such accusations would have seemed peevish and self-serving, a means of placing myself first in the line of succession. I believe Robert would be more disposed to listen if the charges came from Lord Aaron, whom he loved. Ah, said Renly. So we have the word of a dead man. You think he died by happenstance, you purblind fool? Cersei had him poison, or for fear that he would reveal her. Lord John had been gathering certain proofs. Which doubtless died with him. How inconvenient. Catelyn, though, was starting to put things together in her head about Lysa accusing either Cersei or Tyrion Lannister of murdering Jon Arryn, and Stannis says that the Lannisters all suck and are snakes. Renly's hand slid inside his cloak. Stannis saw and reached at once for the hilt of his sword, but before he could draw steel, his brother produced... A peach? Would you like one, brother? From Highgarden. You've never tasted anything so sweet, I promise you. He took a bite. Juice ran from the corner of his mouth. I did not come here to eat fruit. Stannis was fuming. My lords, Catelyn said, 
We ought to be hammering out the terms of an alliance, not trading insults. A man should never refuse to taste a peach, Renly said as he tossed the stone away. He may never get the chance again. Life is short, Stannis. Remember what the Starks say. Winter is coming. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. I did not come here to be threatened either. Nor were you. When I make threats, you'll know it. Renly then goes on to talk about never liking Stannis, but he'll give him Storm's End as a gift, a brother's gift. It ain't Renly's gift to give, according to Stannis. It's his by rights. Sighing, Renly half-turned in the saddle. What am I to do with this brother of mine, Brienne? He refuses my peach, he refuses my castle, he even shunned my wedding. We both know your wedding was a mummer's farce. A year ago, you were scheming to make the girl one of Robert's whores. A year ago, I was scheming to make the girl Robert's queen, Renly said. But what does it matter? The boar got Robert, and I got Marjorie. You'll be pleased to know she came to me a maid. In your bed, she's like to die that way. Iconic as fuck. But Renly says he'll get a son on Marjorie within the year, but Stannis doesn't have any sons, does he? So, so sad, but Renly ain't sad at all. He's got a daughter, though. Maybe Patchface was the father. Selyse is ugly enough. Just, like, seriously, like, fuck this guy. Enough, Stannis roared. I will not be mocked to my face. Do you hear me? I will not. He yanked his long sword from its scabbard. The steel gleamed strangely bright in the warm sunlight, now red, now yellow, now blazing white. The air around it seemed to shimmer as if from heat. Catalin's horse whinnied and backed away a step, but Brienne moved between the brothers, her own blade in hand. Put up your steel, she shouted at Stannis. Cersei Lannister is laughing herself breathless, Catelyn thought wearily. Stannis pointed his shining sword at his brother. I am not without mercy, he thundered he, who was notoriously without mercy. Nor do I wish to sell a lightbringer with a brother's blood. For the sake of the mother who bore us both, I will give you this night to rethink your folly, Brindley. Strike your banners and come to me before dawn. And I will grant you Storm's End and your old seat on the council, and even name you my heir until a son is born to me. Otherwise, I shall destroy you. Renly laughed. Stannis, that's a very pretty sword, I'll grant you. But I think the glow off it has ruined your eyes. Look across the fields, brother. Can you see all those banners? Do you think a few bolts of cloth will make you king? Tyrell's swords will make me king. Rowan and Tarly and Karen will make me king, with axe and mace and warhammer. Tarth arrows and Penrose lances. Fossaway, Coy, Mullendore, Estermont, Selmy, Hightower, Oakheart, Crane, Caswell, Blackbar, Morrigan, Beesbury, Shermer, Dunn, Footley. Even House Florent, your own wife's brothers and uncles. They will make me king. All the chivalry of the South rides with me, and that is the least part of my power. My foot is coming behind a hundred thousand swords and spears and pikes. And you will destroy me? With what, pray? That paltry rabble I see there huddled under my castle walls. I'll call them five thousand to be generous. Codfish lords and onion knights and swords. Half of them are like to come over to me before the battle starts. You have fewer than 400 horse, my scouts tell me. Free riders in boiled leather who will not stand an instant against armored lances. I do not care how seasoned a warrior you think you are, Stannis. That host of yours won't survive the first charge of my vanguard. We shall see, brother. Some of the lights seemed to go out of the world when Stannis slid his sword back into its scabbard. Come the dawn, we shall see. I hope your new god's a merciful one, brother. Stannis snorted and galloped away disdainful. The Red Priestess lingered a moment behind. Look to your own sins, Lord Renly, she said as she wheeled her horse around. Catelyn and Renly returned back to camp with Renly joshing around about the meeting being unprofitable and wondering where he could get a sword like Stannis's. But then he quickly says he's very sad about everything turning out the way he, the way that it is. 
He's basically just acting like little Walter Frey from last week in Brand 5 at this point, folks, and Catelyn calls him out on it. So, Renly shrugs and asks if Stannis' letter is true. Catelyn says that makes Stannis Robert's heir. Well, he lives, Renly admitted. Though it's a fool's law, wouldn't you agree? Why the oldest son and not the best fitted? The crown will suit me, as it never suited Robert and would not suit Stannis. I have it in me to be a great king, strong yet generous, clever, just, diligent, loyal to my friends, and terrible to my enemies, yet capable of forgiveness, patient... Humble, Catelyn supplied. Renly laughed. You must allow a king some flaws, my lady. Catelyn is tired, so fucking tired of all this shit. She had failed, and Rob would fight the Lannisters by himself while the Baratheon brothers killed the shit out of each other. She wants to return to Riverrun to be there when her dad passes away. She was a poor envoy, she found out, but she'd become a good mourner. Renly and Catelyn arrive back at their camp, and we get some flashback on how Renly charged headlong with his cavalry for Bitterbridge to Storm's End, leaving his infantry behind. Catelyn notes that Robert would have done similarly, but he would also have had Ned with him to temper him and convince him to bring up his whole host to besiege the besiegers. And now that they were so far ahead of their main army, they didn't have food or supplies. They had to fight the battle or starve. They arrive back at Renly's green tent where his captains and lords of Edmund await him. Renly tells them that Stannis won't be appeased by castles and courtesies. He's just so fucking lame. So he's going to fight him on the battlefield. But Lord Mathis Rowan doesn't see the need for battle. There's really no strategic benefit to fighting. Let Stannis hang out. He ain't going to be happy with the results. But Renly says he needs to appear not cowardly in front of his men or his brother. Randall, small packer Tarly, says they need to go fight Renly because Stannis is dangerous and could be in Renly's rear harassing him. Alternatively, Stannis could descend on Renly after he's been bloodied by the Lannisters and be just as strong as Renly. So, surprise, surprise, Renly decides to fight. And with that, Catelyn asks for leave to head back to Riverrun. She was here to make her peace, not bear witness to war. But Renly's not going to do that. He wants Cat here to witness him, so totally triumphing over Stannis so she could bring word back to Rob about what happens to rebels and traitors. How the fuck did D&D fuck Renly up so bad in Season 2? My God. Then Renly divides his army up. Mathis will be in the center, Bryce Carroll will be on the left, Renly be on the right, and Lord Estremont will command the reserve. But who will command the vanguard? Everyone starts arguing about it with John Fossaway, Guyard the Green, and Randall Tarley all chiming in to claim the honor. But in the end, Renly says that Sir Loras Terrell will lead the vanguard. But hey, what about Brienne? Well, she wants to be at Renly's side. But Renly's not about to have some chick fighting with him. Renly Baratheon, again, so, so very progressive. So Brienne asks if she can help armor him, and Renly grants her this honor. Someone laughs at Brienne behind her back, and Catelyn realizes that Brienne loves the king. But now that the session is done and Catelyn can't leave, she asks if she can go to a nearby village where she saw a sept. Renly agrees and orders Sir Robert Royce to escort Catelyn to the sept. You might do well to pray yourself, Catelyn said. For victory. For wisdom. Renly chuckles at this and asks Loras to stay behind to pray, but he wants everyone ready at first light to attack Stannis and give Stannis a dawn he will not soon forget. Renly, the prophet. Yeah, nobody's going to forget that dawn. Catelyn sets out at dusk from the pavilion with Robert Royce. She knew the young man slightly. He was Bronze Jan Royce's younger son and a turning knight beside. She comments on him being far from the Vale. He responds that she's far from Winterfell. Catelyn asks why he's come when he's not really his battle, and Robert declares that it's his battle now that now that Renly is his king. Besides, his dad might be all about Lysa Aaron, fact check. Sort of true, but as a second son, he has to find his fortune elsewhere, and being a turning knight wasn't cutting it for Robar. So they make their way back to Catelyn's part of the camp and find her men getting dinner together or sharpening knives. Lucas, one of her men, says it's going to be a battle the next morning, and Catelyn admits as much. So what are they going to do? Get ready to run or to fight? Which one? We pray, Lucas, Catelyn answered him. We pray. And that is, finally, the Renly half of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn Three. 
thank you, thanks, dude, for doing the Renly voice and all the voices. That was really, really good. I really, really appreciate it. But boy, oh boy, what a chapter, man. It's my favorite half of a chapter we've ever done so far. Catelyn 3, <laughs> can I make that joke? I mean, it's kind of a half joke at this point, you know, or is the half joke kind of becoming cliche? I don't know. It's just really, it's just chapter is just outstanding and all the way around. What did you think of this chapter, Emin? So now that we've gotten to the heart of the chapter, while we're doing a lot of great setup work last week, I can say that, yeah, Catalan 3 is the best chapter in A Clash of Kings so far. Practically by definition, this is where the kings clash. We talked back in book one about how the dialogue scene between Ned and Cersei in the Godswood, the one in which she says the phrase Game of Thrones, felt like the center of that book. Same applies here. A Clash of Kings orbits around Catalan 3. So much of the book feels like it's gesturing toward this chapter or rippling out from it. And at its heart is the Stannis Renly showdown, maybe the single best dialogue scene in the entire series. We have been waiting a long time for this. I'm so happy to be here with you, sir. I'm so happy to be here with you too, man. It's really, really pleasant to be doing this chapter for sure. And I was thinking about this too, because I've read ahead to the bunch of the other Catelyn chapters and Catelyn's dialogue with Jamie at the end of A Clash of Kings. Equally, almost equally as good, but not quite. This The dialogue here is just superb in so many, so many ways. So, I mean, we've allowed this to the past in, in past chapters, but there's something sublime about the way that George R. Martin deploys Stannis Baratheon in the narrative. You can't just use Stannis Baratheon. you got to deploy him in the narrative. Save for Ned and Davos, Stannis is kind of the boogeyman on the horizon, right? He's always threatened to overturn the political apple cart of Westeros. And when he's on page, you can sort of see why people treat him like a threat. He's threatening, he's cold, he's taciturn, yet he's also strangely emotional. That's that kind of piece of Stannis that kind of flies in the face of what we anticipate this guy being like. He's kind of eggshell-like, hard-seeming on the outside, but kind of like poked through the shell and he spills out his emotional guts in less than great ways as we're going to explore in this Catelyn episode and the next two Catelyn episodes. And I just find that just so goddamn compelling. I mean, no, I'm not relating my personal life through some balding mid-30s war veteran who has a hard time relating to people yet still wants their love and affection. No way. No, sir. No how. Not any projection here at all, sir. Stannis is in no way a shadow on the wall for both of us. But yeah, you you said it so well. It's 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 these the slippage between the political and personal selves, right? Just as Stannis delivers his mantra, kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies, Renly shows up to deliver the counter-argument. And brothers. And that, of course, sums up so perfectly what's happening here. Is this really a clash of ideologies, two radically different ideas of what it means to be king? Or is this personal, not business, two brothers working out long-standing grievances? And the difference between the two matters, because both Stannis and Renly do put forward claims to power rooted in different conceptions of kingship, but these ideological arguments unravel somewhat as the scene goes on and the bros get angrier at each other. By the end of the scene, I'm left with the conclusion that both Stannis and Renly are claiming the crown because it will piss the other one off, and that's it. (laughs) That's it. Everything else about their claims and campaigns is built on that foundation. The call is coming from inside the house. And that matters because the political structure of Westeros invests a great deal in the personal qualities of the king, and hence, his family relations have consequences for the whole realm. How much would have been different in Westeros if Stannis' crusade to cleanse the royal court of corruption hadn't run aground on his toxic relationships with his brothers? The tragedy here, as both Stannis and Davos will realize later on, is that Stannis and Renly could be an unstoppable team if they found a way to work together. All the ways in which they're perfectly matched opposites that we've been talking about in A Clash of Kings could, if handled right, be complementary strengths. Instead, they're complementary weaknesses, preventing them from ever seeing eye to eye, ensuring that one will kill the other. Stannis just moves slightly quicker. There are not two kings present in this scene. There are three. Robert is here. 
dead but whispering like the heads at Crackclaw Point in A Feast for Crows, a devil driving them both on. Renly justifies everything he does by gesturing at Robert's memory. And, well, just look at him. He looks the part so perfectly, everything in its right place. Except Stannis. Renly has a narrative going that will fix everything. Why can't Stannis get on board? He's just being unreasonably selfish and short-sighted. If you think about this from Renly's perspective, a difficult thing for my co-host to do, I understand, Stannis seems like a figure of not only jealousy, but absurdity. You got on board with Robert, and now he's back, in the form of me. Why are you holding out now, when if you and the Starks join me, this war is over? Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think that I'm going to try to get into like Renly's head a little bit, his headspace for a moment here, trying to you know empathize with this guy. I think he has a genuine or feigned, it's sometimes hard to say which one, juvenile view of politics, power, warfare, and why he's best suited to rule Westeros. Robert was a usurper and he was a total fucking badass that's why he won the crown he beat Ares in battle simply as that well he beat Rhaegar in battle but same difference and now I god I cannot believe that I am pretending to be Renly Baratheon here have the same mandate to rule I've got a badass army just like Big Bob did and I'm gonna win this war the same way that Robert did in a way this does kind of remind me of the hubris of American foreign policymakers when it came to Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria Right. We assume that our military... Interesting how that keeps happening. It's over and over again. It's, it's crazy. It's just crazy coincidence. That once and over and over again. I mean, we just, like, Americans, as, as Americans, we assume that our military strength and our ability to win battles is what post facto legitimizes our entry into conflict. And there was a time in the years after 9-11 where I kind of held something resembling Renly's viewpoint about power and the way it works. So, you're welcome. This is me trying to get into Renly's headspace. I'm so proud of you. Well done, sir. And yes, it's all about that, that, that image, that tough image, Robert's ghost. And the problem is that Robert's ghost is exactly the reason Stannis can't get on board with Renly. Renly's resemblance to young Robert may be a strength for him. It's crucial to his coalition. But what it means for Stannis is that if he bends the knee to Renly, Robert wins again. Robert beats him again, and he just can't take it anymore. <laughs> when Stannis complained in the prologue that Renly has done nothing to win a crown... What he was really saying was that Robert had done nothing to hold it. When Stannis talks scornfully in this chapter about Renly preparing Marjorie to be one of, quote, Robert's whores, it's clear that in his eyes, Renly just keeps blurring into Robert. There are clear, coherent objections for Stannis to make to what Renly is doing and how Renly is justifying himself. We have made those objections. The Starks have made those objections. But Stannis does not make those clear, coherent objections to Renly. Why? Is it because he is an unintelligent man, incapable of marshalling those objections? This is clearly not the case, as we see in his calmer, more articulate moments. Stannis falls back on resentment and entitlement here, not because they're his only moves, but because he cannot get over the feeling that Robert is screwing him over from beyond the grave, and everyone's cheering him on, and he, Stannis, can't do a damn thing about it again. This is not about Renly leapfrogging him in succession, not first and foremost. This is about Proudwing. This is about Robert screwing in Stannis' marriage bed. This is about Renly getting Storm's End and Stannis getting Dragonstone. And above all, this is about Stannis starving to hold on to the family home looming above them now, starving to keep Renly out of the hands of the Mad King, and then Robert walking right past him to thank Ned Stark, the brother he chose. As unreasonable as it is for Stannis to throw that in Catelyn's face in this scene, he's not the only veteran of Robert's Rebellion who works this way. One of the most emotionally resonant aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire for me is how many members of that generation 
are haunted, stunted, unable to move on because of the losses they suffered then and or how their lives have turned out since. We saw that so strongly with Ned in Book 1, how Lyanna increasingly invaded his thoughts, how Renly acted as a ghostly reminder of how Robert used to be. We'll see it again with Jamie when he becomes a POV. We'll see it again with Duran and Oberyn Martell, and again with Barbary Dustin, John Connington, all of them haunted by grief. What Stannis lost in this era wasn't a person so much. You could argue he lost Robert, but more broadly, what he lost was love. It was the hope of connection, the possibility of bonding with another human. He gave it up. Of course, there is a difference between losing something and giving it up, and that will go a long way toward determining how sympathetic you are to Stannis here. But the point is that it's not just him. Once again, we are seeing him as part of a larger pattern. Once again, we are seeing the wheel of time at work. Renly, by contrast, is so young that he may as well be the next generation. He's concerned with the present moment. He's leading the Knights of Summer. He has an incentive to take none of what I'm talking about seriously. So while Stannis broods, Renly shrugs. Everything weighs too heavily on one of them and too lightly on the other. There's no porridge in the middle for Baby Bear that's just right. Again, perfectly matched opposites. Two halves of the whole that was Robert. Yin and Yang that need to be brought into balance but currently careening out of control. You can see that all over this scene. Renly is far more comely, as he says, while Stannis is even balder than Catelyn remembered. Which I love that she puts it that way. <laughs> Renly is all smiles. Stannis is all frowns. Both of them claim to be avoiding threats in the same breath as they indulge in them. They both have women as standard bearers, but what different women? Brienne is blue. Melisandre is red. Brienne is young. Melisandre is really, really old. Brienne is not conventionally beautiful. Melisandre is, or so it appears. Brienne is a local girl from the idyllic, beautiful Isle of Tarth. Melisandre hails from the nightmare city of Ashai on the other side of the planet. Brienne serves the faith of the Seven in various ways throughout her story. Melisandre, of course, serves R'hllor. And above all, Brienne puts it all on the line to save children. Melisandre thinks that offering up children is how you put it all on the line. All of which is to say that we are seeing the breakdown of the royal family, rendered as two distinct, two distinct halves unable to reconcile themselves into a whole. This should be one family, but it's not. And it can never be because the shadow of Robert hangs over both of these two brothers there in different ways. I mean, the shadow falls over Renly and Robert so differently in the narrative, and it creates such different characters. And, you know, you were, I love the similarities you're bringing up between Brienne and Melisandre. And I want to take that in kind of a weird direction, tie it all to Robert, because Robert is, of course, a big part of this this chapter, as you were talking about. He is the ghost here that is the the third king of this chapter. And, I, and I've been kind of, to be honest, I've been kind of mulling a spot to talk about this since the Game of Thrones. And it's not only the similarities and differences in Stannis' banner, men that distinguishes the Baratheon brothers. It's also their potential mentor figures that Stannis and Renly had when they were serving on Robert's small council. You know, Stannis and Renly were both serving as respectively the master of ships and the master of laws. But as you noted in, when we were talking about part two of the Clash of Kings prologue, Stannis was saddled with thankless tasks while Renly had a relatively undistinguished career on the small council. And Stannis was... You know, these these guys were, they had a lot of differences and difficulties in their re, in the relationship before this. I think it only became more so as Renly started to get, get more of the acclaim of the small folk and of the people of Westeros, and Stannis kind of fell into the shadows, literally and figuratively. But I did think about some of the, the mentor figures that were inspiring these two men, and strangely enough, I came up with two. So I think when it comes to the small council, Stannis' mentor figure was John Aaron, perhaps, and Renly's was... Littlefinger, which is a little bit more certain. You know, Stannis was never close to John Aaron, as Ned found out in A Game of Thrones, but they had a shared purpose in attempting to at least do the 
bare minimum, I guess. Is that the right word of using it? To ruling the kingdom? And they're both kind of the same sort of men, prim and proper, and they worked at similar purposes in attempting to uproot Janus corruption and later co-investigating rumors of Cersei's bastards. In contrast, I think the best mentor figure for Renly is Littlefinger. Littlefinger's a little bit older than Renly, as we know. As we talked about in our Game of Thrones analyses about Renly and Littlefinger's relationship, Robert seems fairly dismissive of Peter Baelish, but Peter's always there with a smile, jest, and coin in hand. And I am reminded a little bit of Littlefinger's line from the Game of Thrones Editor 4, when Ned is just aghast at how Robert bankered the realm. The master of coin finds the money, the king and the hand spend it. So in essence, Littlefinger's there to provide the king with the money, much of it proffered from intentionally bad loans, to spend the kingdom into debt to finance Robert's tourneys, feasts, and wanton ways. And similarly, as we talked about before, when Robert is drunk and screaming at his wife at the hand's tourney, Renly's there to provide Robert with another cup. And Stannis notes in the Clash King's prologue that Renly sits in council and japes with Littlefinger, and that gives him the notion that he should be king. I'll give Littlefinger and Renly this. They're clever talkers. They're clever talkers, charming even, and that's what makes Renly and Stannis' interaction in this chapter such a brilliant contrast. Yes, let's get into the, the dialogue itself. Right away, Renly addresses the division within their family and the civil war plaguing Westeros as he always does, as a joke. If we both use the same banner, the battle will be terribly confused. And that perfectly captures the wretched absurdity of what's happening here. What ought to be one banner, one army, one family has somehow become two banners, two armies, which are about to turn on one another. Catelyn immediately points out the folly of this. Their swords, and wrath, should be aimed at someone who doesn't share their banners, namely the Lannisters. There should be no battle here, she says, because what all three have in common is a foe who would destroy them all. You can see here an echo of the pitch Jon Snow will make in A Dance with Dragons, about joining forces with the wildlings in the face of the others. But the thing is... Human grievances and passions don't just vanish for the greater good. The gods fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. Just because it's right doesn't mean it's going to happen. Stannis and Renly aren't just fighting the Lannisters. They're fighting to establish their legitimacy, north and south, and both make that clear to Catelyn in response. Stannis declares that because he is Robert's legal heir, you are with him or against him. If you support any arrangement of power in Westeros, other than everyone bending the knee to Stannis Baratheon, you are inherently a traitor. At the most basic atomic level, I do get this, politically speaking. Stannis' only real asset, as this scene makes clear, is that he's telling the truth about Joffrey. He has to press that claim as hard as he possibly, possibly can because he has the smallest army, the worst reputation, and no gold or glory to lure supporters. And this unitary position about Westeros brings out the best in Stannis in A Storm of Swords. When Davos argues that duty is reciprocal, he owes the people of Westeros, large and small, all of them, as much as they owe him. But in A Clash of Kings, he is focused on obligation running in the other direction, because he is seeing everything, especially Renly, through the lens of Robert's rejection. As such, both Stannis' King Kings Have No Friends line, and his All of Those Who Deny That Are My Foes line, fail to take into account the specific nuances of the Stark position, because they're not bending the knee to him as it stands, but nor are they his enemies, nor are they actually denying his right to the Iron Throne. Catelyn hasn't even heard his claim before this scene. So while Stannis has an incentive to push the twincest claim against Renly, he really doesn't against the Starks, because that has nothing to do with what the Starks are after. That's why I think Stannis' single biggest mistake in this scene is threatening Rob to Catelyn's face and calling him equal to Renly. But on the other hand, Renly also damages his standing with Catelyn here, dismissing Rob's victories out of hand and saying, ah, it doesn't matter, the Lannisters will await my pleasure. 
This only confirms all of Catalan's fears about Renly established in Catalan II, that he's superficial, that his charm obscures a dangerous cynicism. Renly seems to have come to this meeting for no greater purpose than to take pot shots at Stannis, which seems to have been the standard for their whole relationship. Here's how it goes. Renly pokes fun at Stannis, Stannis sputters and snaps back, Renly gets pissy and his jokes start cutting deeper, Stannis loses his shit and leaves, Renly laughs and declares victory. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> Keep in mind that both Baratheons are ostensibly here to give peace a chance. Diplomacy gets one last shot before the war machine takes over, yet they both immediately blow it because they're so used to getting under each other's skin that they can't think of how to do anything else, just like Tyrion and Cersei in this book, even when they're trying to cooperate. A lot of Renly's bitchier lines were cut out of this scene in the show because they were trying to make Renly look more noble, but I love these lines. They're hilarious. And I think they make Renly more relatable, because I understand the temptation to relentlessly make fun of a stick-up-the-ass character like Stannis. In the show, Renly gets the famous line where he points out that everyone from Dorne to the Wall, unborn children to dying old men, everyone is denying Stannis' claim. And this cuts to the heart of Stannis' fears and anxieties that we talked about in the prologue and Davos 1. I have never been loved. I cannot be loved. The realm's rejection mirrors that of my brothers. But in the books after that little speech, Renly throws in, Sorry. Just to make clear he thinks it's funny. Just to make clear that he's taking full advantage of the fact that no one ever likes the middle brother. It's designed to wound Stannis, and it does. Again, this is clearly how this relationship has always worked. It immediately leads to Stannis regretting he bothered to show up for this, which stands out on reread because you know he's only here to give Renly a last chance to survive. But that wasn't always the case, though, interestingly enough, if we go back to the prologue from A Clash of Kings where Stannis says, I will not treat with, I will not treat with Renly. Stannis answers in a tone that brooked no argument, not while he calls himself a king. And then Stannis then references that line here in this chapter. I swore that I would never treat with you while you wore your traitor's crown. Would that I had kept to that vow. So what or who changed Stannis' mind about this? Strangely enough, it's Melisandre, as Stannis explains in A Storm of Swords. She would have spared Renly if she could. It was Melisandre who urged me to meet with him and give him one last chance to amend his treason. To kind of add a weird layer to this, we know from Davos 2 that Melisandre has also seen Renly's end in the flames. All the same, Melisandre isn't really that helpful in this parlay. She has two whole lines that she speaks in this parlay. And when she shows up again in Davos' second chapter, when she's parlaying, when they're parlaying rather with Sir Courtney Penrose, she's similarly un unhelpful. So why is she here again? Like, seriously, like, why is Melisandre here in this parlay? I mean, the best, honestly, and the best theory I can think I know of, and I think I've read this first from a, a writer by the name of, of Cantus, who used to write a number of great theories. Some of them tinfoil, some of them actually really brilliant and insightful, is that Melisandre is, was present because she had to be in visual contact with Renly and later Sir Courtney Penrose in order for the shadow baby magic to work. And then a, kind of a little more tinfoily layer of the theory is that Melisandre had to use the hate that Stannis would feel towards Renly and Sir Courtney to make the magic work. I don't honestly know how I feel about those theories, but they make some sense given the odd aspects of Melisandre's vision of the flames that George layers at the scene and the fact that Melisandre is there at all and not really serving any diplomatic purpose. So I, I guess I'm curious to you, just open discussion question, why do you think Melisandre urged Stannis to parlay with Renly? I think that's a really good theory. I think it makes total sense. It's very creepy and wonderful to consider. Oh, yeah, she's also there with Courtney Penrose. Why is she there? Maybe she needs to make eye contact to the shadow baby knows who to go for. I think there's another line that Melisandre says I'll discuss a little later on that hints at what she's really doing here. But, you know, when you get to the idea that Stannis is here just to give Renly a chance, 
Renly's obnoxiousness makes Stannis regret that mercy because it makes him flash back to every time Robert mocked him, laughed at him, failed to love him. Catelyn, meanwhile, responds to this with maternal consternation. Listen to yourselves. If you were sons of mine, I would bang your heads together and lock you in a bedchamber until you remember that you were brothers. And this is another hilarious, perfectly written line. Again, this is as good as dialogue scenes in the series get. But there's something deeper at work. Remember, Catelyn stands in for the conventional wisdom. She is the consummate establishment politician of Westeros. She sincerely believes the overlapping protections of feudal customs will produce good outcomes. Her story is in large part about being forced to face down the opposite, culminating in the shattering of taboo at the Red Wedding. But that breakdown and rebirth as Stoneheart wouldn't be nearly as effective without these disillusionments along the way, breaking her faith bit by bit. Catelyn can't quite believe what she's seeing here. Two grown men, crowns on their heads, behaving less maturely than Bran and Rickon fighting at Winterfell. <laughs> this suggests she has been wrong all along that the ruling class to which she belongs has a handle on this, and she reacts with shock, anger, and despair. Here are the only two adults claiming the Iron Throne, and from her perspective, they have abandoned the realm they both claim to rule to usurpers and tyrants. And she's right, but Renly and Stannis can't listen to her because they're both too locked into their mutually assured destruction mindset, a race to the bottom. As Tyrion said, they're too similar and yet too different. They abandon each other, but in opposite ways. In terms of the deadly sins, Renly is lust, gluttony, and greed, whereas Stannis is wrath, envy, and pride. In the middle, Catelyn proclaims them both guilty of sloth. Remember, the faith of the Seven hangs heavy over this relationship, so I think that might be what's going on. Stannis does not exactly respond positively to being harangued by Catelyn in such an intimate, presumptuous manner. In response, he threatens Rob's life and equates him to Renly. Again, I think this is his biggest mistake in this scene. Renly is thoroughly unreasonable. There's not much Stannis can do about that. But Rob is not claiming Stannis' throne. Rob has done Stannis no wrong at all. And this naked threat is a politically terrible move. We see that in Catelyn's fury in response to the threat. Stannis has once again made an enemy out of a potential ally, the opposite of what Robert used to do, turning, taking enemies and turning them into friends. Yet even as Catelyn tells Stannis off for his self-centered attitude, she hands him another opportunity. Catelyn declares that Joffrey is Robert's heir, and that they are all traitors for their own reasons, because she never read Stannis' letter. The reader has been living so long with the knowledge of Cersei and Jaime's twincest that it's kind of a shock to be reminded Catelyn still doesn't know about it. Stannis tells her the truth, bluntly as usual. Joffrey is not Robert's heir, nor is Tommen, nor Marcella. They are bastards, and Stannis is the Baratheon heir. I maintain that Stannis is the best-written character in the series, in large part because of how precisely George balances the angel and a devil within him. We've just seen Stannis make a huge unreasonable mistake, treating the Starks as though they are his enemies on the same level as Renly or the Lannisters. But now, George flips the coin to show us the other side, King Stannis at his best. Renly declares that Stannis is lying, but we know he's telling the truth. And when Catelyn presses, his, uh, presses him on his motivations, why did you stay silent? Well, he gives a really good answer. I did not keep silent, Stannis declared. I brought my suspicions to John Aaron. Rather than your own brother? Well, my brother's regard for me was never more than dutiful, said Stannis. From me, such accusations would have seemed peevish and self-serving, a means of placing myself first in the line of succession. I believed Robert would be more disposed to listen if the charges came from Lord Aaron, whom he loved. 
Well, look at that. Stannis being politically savvy. (laughs) Self-aware and aware of what others will think. He knows how this looks. He knows that from the outside, he looks like your classic evil uncle. Just selfish and grasping after his nephew's crown. You know, Hamlet, Lion King, pick your reference point. As such, Stannis took steps to demonstrate that his substance is different from that surface appearance. He went out of his way to not be the evil uncle. By going to John Aaron, a trustworthy figure beloved by Robert, he demonstrated his good intentions, that this was about the truth, not just claiming the crown for himself. Moreover, this deepens the tragedy of Stannis Baratheon, the way in which his story always circles back to the hole inside him where Robert's love should be. If he had had a better relationship with Robert, Stannis would have gone to him right away, and everything might have been different. Instead, he had to go to Robert's found family, the father he chose. And consider what a painful decision that was for Stannis. Judging from how he talks about Ned, he's still hurting from Robert preferring his new family to his old one. Yet Stannis swallowed his pain and went to John Aaron anyway, because that was both the right and smart thing to do. He tried his best to get past his bullshit, and it backfired. Now John Aaron and Robert are both dead. And not only is Renly claiming the crown, he is mocking Stannis' efforts to expose the truth. So we have the word of a dead man, whose evidence doubtless died with him. And I can't blame Stannis for losing his temper and calling Renly a purblind fool at this point. Renly's eyes are wide shut, ignoring any inconvenient evidence. Renly benefits from how Catelyn framed the war before she learned about the twincest. We are all traitors, however good our reasons. If that was true, then Renly would seem like the better choice than Stannis. Neither has a legal claim to the throne, and Renly has the bigger army. But it's not true. Stannis is telling the truth. He is Robert's legal heir. And that makes him a danger to Renly every bit as much as the Lannisters. Now why is that? Stannis already sent a letter exposing Cersei and declaring himself the rightful king. As Renly points out, this did not produce a huge army at his back. So why am I saying that Stannis' claim about the twincest makes him a danger to Renly? Because of Catelyn. Catelyn is what makes Stannis dangerous. She is the ideal audience for Stannis' letter, which makes it so wonderfully ironic that she is the last person in Westeros to hear about it. Why is she the ideal audience? Because everything that happened at Winterfell in Book 1 suddenly makes more sense to her in context with Stannis' claim. Why did the Lannisters kill Jon Arryn, according to the letter Lysa sent her? Oh, now Catelyn knows. It was because Jon was working with Stannis to expose them. Now, of course, there is another layer of delicious irony on reread, because we know it wasn't the Lannisters who killed Jon Arryn at all. (laughs) But it's logical, given what they know, for Stannis and Catelyn to reach the conclusion they do. As Stannis puts it, Jon Arryn stepped into a viper's nest. Suddenly Catelyn goes, oh, I get what's been happening in my family's life and politics for the past few months. Suddenly things are starting to make more sense. She has like two-thirds to three-quarters of the picture like complete in her mind at this point in, in A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 3. But she's just missing that last piece of Littlefinger's involvement in all this and, of course, Lysa's involvement too. But it, in, in this reread, it dawned on me that Renly specifically cut Catelyn out of the loop about Stannis's letter when he had every opportunity and chance to inform her about it, right? I mean, by the time Catelyn catches up with Renly at Bitterbridge, he's been in possession of the information that Stannis sends for a bit of time, as, as Renly says that he got it while he was at Randall Tarley's castle. He was he was at Horn Hill. And so the information catches Catelyn totally off guard. And you can get a sense of what Renly's up to in withholding that vital information from Catelyn. At some level, he must have known that Catelyn was unaware of Stannis' letter when she arrived at Bitterbridge. Why would she even be treated with Renly in the first place? 
So he keeps her in the dark in hopes that Catelyn wouldn't find out about the letter, or if she did, she found about she found about it until it was too late. That is when Stannis was dead. Information is dangerous, not just swords. Shadows on the wall, ideas are power. And in Catelyn 4, Catelyn will continue to put the pieces together. This is why Ned went down in King's Landing. He learned the truth that his predecessor died for. This is why they tried to kill Bran. He caught Cersei and Jaime mid-twincest at Winterfell. And that's why Catelyn is not a mere camera person in this scene. She changes the dynamic just by being present. She brings a very distinct perspective to the revelation Stannis just threw down on the table. And that perspective, in turn, shapes Renly's response to Stannis' claim. Renly seems to realize, all at once, that Catelyn's presence makes Stannis dangerous. He's losing the narrative that, because they're all equally traitors, they should all go with young, handsome, charming Robert Reborn with his huge army. Suddenly, Stannis has a political edge that seems to be taking hold with the Stark Tully emissary. The letter was just a shadow on the wall. It takes an audience to give it meaning. And so Renly begins to drop his friendly mask. All this of snakes and incest is droll, but it changes nothing. You may well have the better claim, Stannis, but I still have the larger army. (laughs) Here we see Renly's true face. He is not a man of the people, claiming the crown simply because there's no other way to get rid of the Lannisters after Robert's death, which is what he told Catelyn. He is a warlord, with no basis for power beyond threats of physical force. He says, I still have the larger army, like it's a natural occurrence, (laughs) rather than a decision he has made and will go on making in spite of Stannis telling the truth. Like I said back in Catelyn 2, Renly seems reasonable and like the best choice available, Only as long as everything's going his way and everyone's getting on board. As soon as a chink in his perfect armor appears, the smile drops and the knives come out. Because Renly's image is nothing more than a shadow. And I was thinking about this too. If Renly had taken the opportunity to source his claim to anything other than having a larger army, he would come off a lot better to us who are reading it, who might be initially supportive of Stannis. If he had sourced his claim to in ending some of the sufferings that the small folk are enduring as a result of the political machinations of the nobility, we'd be like, okay, I mean, maybe you're not legally the heir, but I think we can obviously support this because this is good, well, and good. But we never get that sense from Renly in this chapter. And we get that an even less sense of this in Catelyn's fourth chapter, when Catelyn realizes that Stannis is most likely right and goes to Renly's tent to plead one last time for the two Baratheon brothers to put down their arms. Let the three of you, that is Rob, Renly, and Stannis, call for a great counsel, such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years. We will send to Winterfell so Bran may tell his tale and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers. Let the assembled lords of the Seven Kingdoms choose who shall rule them. That seems wholly reasonable to me. How, just before this quote, Catelyn even says that Rob will put aside his crown to make it happen. Now, whether Rob would actually put aside his crown is something we'll talk a little bit more about in Catelyn 4. But that Catelyn would even venture this much is a massive victory for Renly, potentially. It's an even more impressive victory for Renly, given that his entire claim to the Iron Throne is rooted in having the bigger army, the most chivalrous lords, and the most numerous lords, too. But Renly's not going to take that chance that he won't be selected. Renly laughed. Tell me, my lady, do Dyrell's vote on who should lead the pack? Brienne brought the king's gauntlets and great helm crowned with golden antlers that would add a foot and a half to his height. The time for talk is done. Now we see who is stronger. Renly's final words are him declaring that he is a warlord, as he puts so, so well. It's couched in a smile and a laugh, but the truth is out, and so too Renly's knife is out too. Stannis must die. Renly honestly does not care that corruption and murder swallowed his royal family's court hole. 
which suggests he won't actually do a damn thing about it. If Renly's sole claim to power is the size of his army, what happens when he loses a battle? What happens if his sons by Marjorie can't maintain that army? What happens if, say, he has to split his army, which he just did by coming here? <laughs> now, you can argue that power ultimately comes down to force. Renly didn't invent that idea. But in my opinion, the essence of leadership is unearthing faint glimmers of civilization in this barbaric slaughterhouse known as humanity. We invent shadows on a wall, not because we honestly think they're real and can guide us independently, but because the alternative is a Hobbesian abyss. Stripping society down to brute force is not the insight of a leader, it is the insight of a con man and a bully. And as we see in this scene, Renly Baratheon is a bully to the core. Is he a charming, popular, politically effective bully? Yeah, you bet. Many bullies are. That's precisely how they get away with it. Just look at Euron Crow's eye. But Euron scorns material attachments because his third eye has been wide open for decades. Renly, by contrast, is the living embodiment of materialism. He's all surface riches, no inner substance, as everyone from Cresson to Donald Noy to Olenis says. And George made that so clear in Catelyn 2 when she took note with a raised eyebrow of how overstuffed Renly's tent is and how it's all slowing him down. If Stannis has too little, small army, empty treasury, shriveled heart, Renly has too much. He's a spoiled brat wasting every resource to pass through his hands, but within the culture of the Reach, that translates into power and glory. If you take Renly and plump him into the North or even the Riverlands, this wasteful worldview would be much less popular, hence Catelyn's skepticism. But Renly is a product of the political culture of the Reach, the Knights of Summer. And so he pulls out a, not a sword to make his point, but a peach. Hmm. This peach is the single most important symbol of Renly's character, and it merits a lengthy discussion, because this episode was never going to be short anyway. First of all, the way he deploys it perfectly sums up his personality, and how it inevitably leads him into conflict with Stannis and his personality. Renly just said that legal claims don't matter because he will stake his claim by force, and then reaches into his cloak. Stannis naturally interprets this as a threat and goes for his sword, so when it's not a threat, he looks foolish. Renly was not technically threatening Stannis, but by staging matters to make it appear like he was, he ramps up the hostility of the scene anyway, and that's their relationship in a nutshell. Renly then offers a peach to Stannis. This is a classic Renly move, in that it's an attempted intimidation disguised at generosity. The same logic was at work by allowing Catelyn to use his tent, therefore showing off all the splendor within it. That's why Renly emphasizes that his peach comes from Highgarden, just like his huge army, and that Stannis has never tasted a peach, or an army, quite as sweet. And in part, the peach just stands in for Loras and his sweet Tyrell ass, of course. That's why <laughs> Renly bites into it so gleefully as the juice runs down his chin. But it's more than that. Stannis knows it means more than that. He's haunted by Renly's peach after he dies. Stannis swears to Davos he will go to his grave thinking of his brother's peach. He knows Renly meant it to mean something. He just doesn't know what. And of course he doesn't know what, because the peach stands in for everything Stannis has been denied by the world around him and also by himself. Love, laughter, life, wine and sex and song, the fruits of youth, the taste of summer. Stannis is so far gone, he doesn't even know what he's missing anymore. The peach stands in for the nights of summer. And that style stands in direct counterpoint to Stannis's style as established on Dragonstone earlier in the book. No peaches there. It also makes me think of Jorah's peach back in Daenerys' first chapter in this book that he offered to her, and the peach, the brothel in Stony Sept that Arya visits with Gendry and the Brotherhood in the Storm of Swords. All these peaches stand in for the persistence of the summery fairy tale ideal 
in hard, bleak times. Jorah's peach grew stubbornly out of the City of Bones, and the peach in Stony Sept is an oasis in the middle of the burned-out riverlands. You know, Stannis himself feels like a City of Bones or a burned-out countryside at times. As his banner <laughs> makes clear, he is what's left over after you set your heart on fire. Renly grew like a peach out of that soil and wants to leave it behind, and I understand why. <laughs> Problem is, though, Jorah's Peach and the Brothel Peach also stand in for the weight of backstory, for falls from grace, for the inability to escape. Jorah tells Danny about Lyness right after giving her his peach. Lyness was a southern beauty, a lady of summer, who couldn't take root in the stony north. The Peach in Stony Sept plays host to the lost souls Robert Baratheon leaves behind on the road to glory, just like he left Stannis behind. The Peach is where Robert's daughter, Bella, flirts unknowingly with Robert's son, Gendry. Neither ever met their father. Robert hangs over them, present but absent, just like how he hangs over Stannis and Renly, a ghost in a golden crown. The peach is life that strives to overcome death, but comes crashing back down to earth anyway. I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. I tried to grasp a peach, overreached and fell. I love that, man. I love the way that you put that. I think that's very true. All of the stuff about the innocence, as well as the sexuality, about the youth, about summer, it's all really, really embedded in this, you know, this paragraph of a, of a line from A Clash of Kings, Catelyn Three. Uh, George, for his part, did comment about the peach when he was asked about this at, around the time when Game of Thrones season two was airing in 2012. And George said, the peach represents, well, it's pleasure. It's tasting the juices of life. Stannis is a very martial man concerned with his duty and with that peach. Renly says, smell the roses, dude, because Stannis is always concerned with his duty and honor and what he should be doing, and he never really stops to taste the fruit. Renly wants him to taste the fruit, but it's lost. I wish that scene had been included in the TV series, because for me, that peach was important, but it wasn't possible. Well said. Yeah, I think George sums it up perfectly. It's, it's, it's life, but life on the other side of the glass for Stannis, the life he could never have, the life that Robert led. And when Renly borrows the stark words to say that because winter is coming, Stannis should try one of the peaches before he dies, he's unknowingly describing what's about to happen to him and many of his nights of summer. Winter is coming, yes, for King Renly Baratheon, the laughing storm in his prime, for Robar Royce and Emin Coy of his glittering, beautiful rainbow guard, for so many of the nights of summer at the Battle of Blackwater. They have all eaten their last peaches. They have all had their last taste of summer. The stranger is here. The splendid south is the domain of death now. And throughout both the books and the show, winter, and therefore the others, stand in for death. Remember, summer officially gave way to autumn at the beginning of this book, in Crescent's prologue, on Dragonstone, where we met Stannis, as if he was autumn. Just like how all the seasons are out of whack in this world, summer and winter both lasting far too long, Renly and Stannis are the forces of life and death, both of them equally vital, spinning out of control, cancers infecting the world and each other. And to come back to Melisandre, her line, look to your own sins, Lord Renly, is haunting in retrospect. I don't think she's talking about his usurper's crown there, because as she tells Davos in the Storm of Swords, she could not possibly care less about who sits that ugly iron chair. That's not what she's in this for. Instead, I think what Melisandre is talking to Renly about is a general reckoning with death. It's similar to how Melisandre gave Cresson one last chance to save himself from his own poison in the prologue. Look to your sins, Lord Renly. Repent before it's too late. I love that. Yeah. I mean, like earlier I was talking about how this 
potential theory that Melisandre had to be at the parlay in order to get visual contact with the target of a future justified Shadow Baby Strike. But I, I like your alternative theory quite a lot. It, it reminds me a bit of, of Jojen from Bran's fourth chapter, as we covered a few weeks ago, where Jojen Reed regarded Bran solemnly. It would be good if you left Winterfell, Bran. It would? Yes, and sooner rather than later. And as we know from Bran 4 and Bran 5, Jojen wants Bran to leave Winterfell because of the green dreams he's had of the sea coming to Winterfell, and then later of Rick skidding the faces off of Bran and Rickon. But as we talked about in our analysis of Bran 5, Jojen may have been attempting to forestall the green dream, despite knowing that his green dreams always come true. Melisandre could be attempting to pull a Jojen here on Renly, attempting to forestall King Stannis's brother's death, begging him not to let his prophesied fate come true. A prophesied fate that, of course, Melisandre is going to help bring it to being. So it does. it's a little bit strange that Melisandre is here, but I do like your alternate theory a, a bit too. Well, Melisandre and Jojen are both, you know, people who are conduits for great power, but they're also flawed mortals trying to make sense of things, and sometimes those come into contradiction, just like Stannis and Renly come into contradiction. And Catelyn, as always, is the windblown woman in the center of these world events, desperately trying to find an intervention point that will save the day. My lords, we ought to be hammering out the terms of an alliance, not trading taunts. Neither of them listen. They're in too deep. To back down now is to admit the other one was right. The brothers can't form a whole. One can only defeat the other. Stannis, being Stannis, can only sit and fume, tossing out hilariously literal lines like, I did not come here to eat fruit, and <laughs> I did not come here to be threatened either. Instead of laying out an affirmative reason, he did come here. Renly responds that he wasn't threatening Stannis. This is a lie. He was not explicitly threatening Stannis, but saying you have the larger army and that Stannis should enjoy life while he still can... That is an implicit threat for sure. It's like when Oberyn says, I wasn't threatening Tywin when I said he might die someday. Yes, you were. Renly then offers another poisoned gift. Storm's End. He does this as a show of generosity. When Stannis refuses, Renly turns with a theatrical side to Brienne and complains that Stannis is determined to be unreasonable. Nothing he can do. This is so thoroughly disingenuous that I am tempted to submit it as Exhibit A in the case that Renly is not even attempting to bargain in good faith with Stannis. Stannis is not here for Storm's End. Yes, he's laid siege to the castle, and yeah, he is still complaining about Robert giving it to Renly instead of him. But Renly knows very well that Stannis is going for the crown, not the castle. He's known that for quite some time now, as he says, since Horn Hill. He knows that Stannis is only here because Renly's claim makes it impossible for Stannis to make good on his own. This is like if someone stole your pizza and then offered you a slice of it and then acted all offended when, <laughs> when that wasn't enough to placate you. Renly is not offering Stannis Storm's End with the expectation that this will defuse the conflict. He is doing so with the knowledge that Stannis will refuse, which will give Renly the excuse to say to his lord, Ah, Stannis refused my reasonable offer. Nothing I could do. It's a mummer's farce, like his wedding to Marjorie, as Stannis points out. Every step along the way, Renly's surface appeal does not match his actual behavior. And that is how politics works, to a large extent, of course. That's the whole point of Varys' riddle. What matters is what people think. Renly says he'll have a son on Marjorie within the year. The, the performance will be kept. The image will be maintained. So what does it matter if he's gay, or that his plan A was marrying her to Robert? What does it matter? The problem with Renly is what happens when the image is challenged when the shadow on the wall turns violent, as it will literally in Catelyn 4. And in those situations, Renly just can't help himself. He has to mock Stannis one more time. He has to throw in the Lannisters' cooked-up rumor about Patchface fathering Shireen. 
And this cuts deep emotionally, because Renly is mocking Selyse and Shireen, as well as Stannis, the entirety of the shriveled Baratheon court on Dragonstone. I cast ye out, Renly says to all of them in the shadow of their family home of Storm's End. What really enrages me, though, is how Renly is deliberately muddying the waters by parroting Lannister propaganda he has to know is false. Again, George is showing us how the truth behind Stannis' claim has made him much more dangerous to Renly, now that they're sharing a political stage. Catelyn's presence, potentially believing Stannis, potentially providing evidence to back him up, well, that has weaponized Stannis' previously ineffective whistleblowing. Renly now wants to make it a wash, as with their claims on the whole, and that's why he brings up Selyse and Patchface. See, we all have bastards, we all have this going on in our households. And in doing so, he legitimizes the Lannisters' lies. He sprinkles gold dust on their bullshit. He makes it less likely that the coup he barely escaped in King's Landing will be honestly accounted for. And he does all that just to hit Stannis where it hurts in view of our POV. And, and though I think it's extremely unlikely that Littlefinger and Renly are in direct contact at this time in Clash of Kings, we should remember that the idea of libeling Stannis, Elise, Shireen, and Patchface, don't forget Patchface, that idea sprung from Littlefinger. Renly pouncing on this obvious fable that he knows to be a lie is extraordinarily self-serving. It's Littlefinger-esque. Littlefinger-esque. Recall Littlefinger's statement to the small council from Tyrion's third chapter in Clash of Kings we covered a few months ago. The best lies contain with them nuggets of truth, enough to give the listener pause. Renly's isn't it lovely story about Stannis' statement on Cersei's children is Renly's version of Littlefinger's The Best Lies Contain Nuggets of Truth. At a level, Stannis does want the throne, and him using the pretext or justification, any pretext or justification, seems like a plausible motivation for Stannis to lie about the bastardy of Cersei's children. That being said, the taunts about Selyse are another example of Renly giving off that really strong Littlefinger vibe. What was it that Littlefinger said about Selyse back in Tyrion's third chapter? You'd have to be a fool to want to wed Selyse Florence, said Littlefinger. Doubtless Patchface reminded her of Stannis. And now Renly here. As to your daughter, I understand. If my wife looked like yours, I'd send my fool to surface her as well. So Selyse has become a prop. She's a punchline for two similar and extraordinarily cruel jokes by Littlefinger and by Renly. But Selyse isn't merely a prop for these two Tucker Max wannabes. She's also a prop for Stannis. She's a vessel through which Stannis can express his outrage over his wounded pride. Enough, Stannis roared. I will not be mocked to my face. Do you hear me? I will not. And, and I know I've, at this point I'm becoming at least a board member of the Selyse Defense League. But come on, Stannis. Come on, dude. I mean, you do understand why Stannis would be angry. Renly is insulting his wife. But that's not why Stannis is mad here. He's mad because Renly has wounded his pride, reminding him of how he was screwed over with an ugly wife and that even that ugly wife cheated on Stannis with a fool. No one can love Stannis. Why can't they love him? But hey, shouldn't you maybe put that grievance aside for one second and be a little more upset on your wife's behalf that Renly is lying about Selyse's infidelity? Yeah, you absolutely should. And hey, thinking like a smart political figure that we know you to be, you had just brought this whole idea of informing John Aaron and bringing him into the investigation in order so that your claim doesn't seem self-serving. This is Stannis as a smart political actor. You can be a smart political actor against Danny. Perhaps you maybe turn Renly's slander around and use this as a means to win Catelyn over. Like, look, this is another noble lord of Westeros attempting to malign the honor of my wife in order for short-term political gain. This seems like something that would very much appeal to Catelyn. But, you know, he can't. 
he, Stannis cannot view outside of his own prism of his own hurts and his emotional needs. And that makes it really a tragedy, ultimately, that Stannis is in terms of his political acting. Because it does he does great work in one hand, very smart stuff. You're like, this guy's a brilliant genius. And on the other hand, he's got the emotional maturity of a fucking three-year-old. Absolutely. Renly's mockery only works because Stannis is a walking, talking, open wound. A scab you can't help but pick at. As hard as I am on Renly, Stannis continues to descend into immaturity and self-sabotaging stubbornness, shoulders clenched and teeth gritted. When Renly makes his disingenuous offer of Storm's End, Stannis could have refused to rise to the bait. He could have said, Renly, that is a disingenuous offer. You know I'm not here for Storm's End. I came here because I knew it would bring you, and you don't seem to realize the damage you're doing. I'm telling the truth. Instead, what Stannis says is, It is not yours to give! It is mine by rights! <laughs> this is childish, completely off-message from the substance of his claim, and even if Renly was negotiating in good faith, there's no way to respond to that. This is not what you expect to hear from the adult in the room, the rightful heir with the impressive resume coming to restore order, justice, and peace. This is what you expect to hear from the birthday boy who's been up a little too late and is throwing a temper tantrum about how long his new video game is taking to load. If you're not invested in the character dynamics and backstory I've been talking about, I can't blame you for writing off Stannis with an eye roll at this point. Although if you do, later developments in his story will land much less effectively. Stannis follows up this pathetic display by drawing Lightbringer in response to Renly's mockery, declaring with a roar that he is done being laughed at. As with most of the key moments in Stannis' story, there is a powerful duality at work, as Stannis here is both a supreme badass and a total fucking clown. <laughs> On one hand, Lightbringer is glowing like a lightsaber. All the colors of fire captured and blazing forth. Stannis is, is Prometheus. He's the son of fire. He's this amazing god king etched against the sky. And he gets an intense monologue to match the intense visuals. I am not without mercy. Nor do I wish to sully Lightbringer with a brother's blood. For the sake of the mother who bore us both, I will give you this night to rethink your folly, Renly. Strike your banners and come to me before dawn, and I will grant you Storm's End and your old seat on the council, and even name you my heir until a son is born to me. Otherwise I shall destroy you. Stannis feels like a hero in the classical or Shakespearean sense, not a role model, but a figure of renown, importance, a serious man, not someone you mock. It's all very dramatic and memorable. Stephen Delane in the show delivers these lines well at a medium clip, but imagine someone like Michael Shannon tearing them into them with volume, someone who can really <laughs> chew scenery. But even as George builds Stannis up as this fearsome, impressive figure with one hand, he is cutting him down with the other, using multiple tricks to frame him as hypocritical and buffoonish. The clearest example of this is how right after Stannis says that he is not without mercy, George pops in to remind us that Actually, Stannis' whole reputation is being completely <laughs> merciless. Now, Jeff, you have done great work pointing out that Stannis is not as inflexible as his reputation suggests. And that's why I think it's so good that George says that Stannis is notoriously without mercy. This isn't about reality. It's about the image. It's about what you're notorious for. As we've said, Stannis does his best work in the dark. He is not lying when he says he's not without mercy. He does have some mercy in his heart. We see it as the series goes on. But from Catelyn's perspective, he is lying, because she has never seen the evidence to suggest that he has mercy. And that's on him. George also undercuts Stannis by having him respond so violently to being mocked. Right after mocking Renly about his wedding being a farce. 
Wait, so why is it okay for Stannis to mock Renly's family and sexual life, but as soon as Renly mocks Stannis's family and sexual life, oh, that's out of bounds, and now it's time to draw swords. Again, this is a race to the bottom. Both Renly and Stannis are indulging in their complementary weaknesses instead of their complementary strengths. They're getting angrier, more sarcastic, more committed to violence, and less loving. Stannis cannot bear being mocked because of how much it reminds him of Robert never loving him. This is a weakness he has in common with Tywin, Tyrion, and Victarion. Renly, meanwhile, mocks everything and everyone. He has to mention that he has the Florence, Selyse's in-laws. He has to make light of Stannis' military prowess by saying he only thinks he's a seasoned warrior. That's his weakness. And those two weaknesses combined ensure that the Baratheon brothers will never be at peace. That's really well said, man. And it, came, it brought to my mind this uh, this idea that Catelyn was talking about earlier about when she was asking the two brothers to remember them being brothers and locking them in the bedchamber until they actually remembered that. The, in my mind, hilarious and really bitter irony of this is that Stannis and Renly are extremely well aware that they're brothers. Renly, as Crescent was before him, is extraordinarily aware of Stannis' inability to understand mockery. And Stannis is extraordinarily aware of how Renly is threatening him, lying about him, and is a potent reminder of Robert's dislike of him. Stannis and Renly remember that they're brothers in the same way that Jacob and Esau remember they were brothers, like that Cain and Abel remember that they were brothers too. Sometimes brothers suck and they don't relate well and can be extremely shitty to each other. They can usurp crowns and firstborn statuses, gain the favor of God or gods, and can murder each other too. Oof, yeah, beautifully said. I mean, this, the brother relationships, they run the full gamut. Sometimes it's what brings you together, sometimes it's what, it's what drives you apart. But before Stannis and Renly bust apart for good, we do finally get, in this Clash of Kings, a direct debate about where power comes from what it means to be the king. What is this thing, this, this power thing that we're all just talking about so much? What is it, actually? Stannis swears that he will destroy Renly. And Renly says, How? The glow-off Lightbringer has ruined your eyes, brother. Prophetic narratives, coupled with Stannis' self-centered attitude, has blinded him to reality. It dovetails with what Salador Sand said about Lightbringer in Davos 1. Too much light can blind the eyes. The reality of the situation is that Renly has far more political support than Stannis. The middle Baratheon brother might dismiss those banners as mere bolts of cloth, but what matters is the men holding them, and their powerful lords. Renly rattles off an impressive list of names, far more so than any of those Stannis brought with him. And Renly has a huge force of infantry waiting behind him in the Reach. The odds are so stacked that Renly can confidently predict half of Stannis' men will come over to him before the battle starts. And he might be right, because a lot of them come over to him when it's not even him at the Blackwater, when it's just someone wearing his armor. There's no way for Stannis to destroy him. Renly doesn't know about Melisandre's powers, so he can only interpret Stannis' threat as one more sign that Big Brother has finally disappeared up his own ass. For Renly, those banners indicate that the battle is over before it began. Stannis already lost. He already lost their support, and all he can do is shriek at them that they broke the rules. And that is one way of looking at power, and it is a coherent and not superficial one. But Stannis offers another. Those flags are fickle and superficial next to the truth, because the truth is the source of power. As Davos says in his next chapter, yeah, those were Robert's banners once, and they used to be the Mad Kings, and soon they'll be Joffrey's, and then Tommen, and then probably Young Grift. Hyle Hunt puts it best. Renly? Who was he? No one cares. No one remembers. Meanwhile, what men Stannis has left 
follow him into winter's teeth. Even as his lords doubt him, the common soldiers keep faith because of his ideals, because of the truth. There aren't many of those men left, of course, and that's not going to change how Stannis' deal with the devil ends. But it is a reservoir of strength that Renly lacks. If Renly's army fell apart, if Renly lost a few battles, if Renly had a small army, he wouldn't be the king anymore. Because that's how he's king. But Stannis is the king no matter how small his army is. Renly has no authority in the Vale, or the Westerlands, or the Riverlands, because he hasn't personally charmed anyone there. But the truth? The truth applies everywhere. Again, back to Stannis' duality. This is both a deeply admirable and a fatally passive agenda. It is both exactly what you want in a leader, and not nearly enough on its own. And in this expression of their most sincerely held political beliefs, Stannis and Renly reveal how much they need each other. But their personal baggage proves to be too much. And despite the, co- despite the comic tone to much of this scene, despite how both Baratheon brothers ultimately come off like obnoxious, overgrown rich kids, there is real tragedy here. And I love how George writes it. Some light seems to go out of the world when Stannis sheathes his sword. Even as he mentions the dawn, darkness has fallen in Westeros. The royal family is broken, and it will never be put back together again. Humpty Dumpty has fallen and broken, and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put him back together again. I think we made the right call putting these Catalan chapters together, but one benefit of reading them as they're written in the book is seeing Sansa 3 in between Catelyn 3 and Catelyn 4. And in Sansa 3, what happens is Joffrey has Sansa beaten and stripped naked in public. So look at the big picture. While Stannis and Renly, two reasonably competent adults with every reason to team up, indulge in these fraternal squabbles at home, the sadistic child king on the throne they're both claiming is abusing hostages while the crowd cheers him on. Those are the consequences. That's what they're letting happen. Stopping those atrocities is less important to the Baratheon bros than one-upping each other. When Catelyn thinks to herself that Cersei must be laughing herself breathless at the spectacle of her foes turning on each other, we as readers know she's right, because we saw Cersei laughing about this a couple Tyrion chapters ago. Whatever you think of Stannis, whatever you think of Renly, Robert's brothers would both be better than the Lannisters. And they're both letting the Lannisters win anyway. And that, I think, is a pretty grave condemnation of them both. You're absolutely right, man. I then I think it's, again, excellently said. I, I think when we look at Renly and Stannis, and we look at their claims to the Iron Throne, I think that Stannis has the legal right to the throne. Renly has a larger army. Put these two together, and you have the makeup of a potentially potent ruling family that can reassemble itself. This Catelyn chapters were coming to the to the conclusion of the parlay portion of it anyways. It reminds me so strongly of events at the end, towards the end of A Game of Thrones, as Robert lays dying and the realm starts to crumble around him, the realm that he has been building up, that has been built up over the last 16 or so odd years that Robert was in, was in power. Here, you have one last chance, one last opportunity for the good guys, or at least let's call them the non-Lancer faction, to get their shit together form an alliance and go out and conquer. But they're not going to do that, and they can't do that. And this is something we've talked about specifically in the podcast about how the feudal structure works and that it ties the people to the rulership and it's built through personal bonds and connections. But when those personal bonds and connections are broken, as we will be discussing significantly when we get into a feast for crows between the land and the people, or rather between the people and the nobility and the ruling class, it leads to a destruction of the 
of, of basically the entire country and the entire political structure altogether. Here we're seeing that at a 10,000 foot view, so to speak, with Stannis and Renly's personal bond being broken and then being unable to ally themselves and this bringing these two brothers to blood when they should and could be allies and they could actually put the realm back together and as we said before, Catelyn even offers to have Rob put the crown aside so the realm could avoid war altogether and focus on the real enemy. The Lancers, the others, both. You know, basically all of this stuff here that we should be looking at in the context of the others coming into ruin shit very, very soon. But this is not the end of this, this Catelyn chapter because there's a whole second half of this chapter, which is all about what happens when Stannis is gone. And we're not going to see this guy for a long, long time. This is true. We won't see Stannis again until Davos 2 after Renly's death, and then that's going to be it for Clash of Kings. Our POV, Catelyn, sticks around with Renly after Stannis leaves. And even more than the conversation between the brothers, this is where Renly's charming persona really falls apart. He and his brother have just declared war on one another, and yet the outsider, Catelyn, feels more grief than Renly, whose grief, as you said in the synopsis, is feigned like little Walder in Bran 5 when Stevron dies. In both cases... They only care about the game. As always, Renly finds all of this most amusing. He never loved Stannis anyway, and can only think about how much better Lightbringer would look in his hands. This is Renly's superficiality and selfishness in a nutshell, and it only gets worse. Renly finally addresses Stannis' claim instead of dodging it, so we have the word of a dead man, and in doing so reveals he doesn't care about the truth. As Catelyn says, if Stannis' story is true, he is indeed Robert's heir. You can see in this moment that Catelyn has come to much prefer Stannis' claim to Renly's, even though Stannis personally alienated her in the previous conversation. And I want to emphasize this. Renly decides that Stannis must die. Not because he's worried about Stannis as a military threat, he's not, but because Catelyn believes Stannis. That's why Renly wants Stannis dead. Stannis is now a political threat to Renly, not a military threat. Because if Catelyn goes back to Riverrun and tells Rob that Stannis is slash was the rightful heir... Renly's path to the Iron Throne suddenly gets a whole lot more difficult. The Starks joining Stannis is what he's really worried about here. And so, at last, Renly admits that Stannis is Robert's rightful heir after all, while he lives. There it is. The mask has fallen. Renly isn't here to save the day. Renly is here to launch a coup. And if an honest whistleblower like Stannis is going to get in the way of that coup, then he needs to be killed before he can. Fuck that. No wonder Renly's lords are happy to support the Lannisters after his death. He's doing their dirty work for them, covering up Stannis' exposure of their corruption. Renly then attempts to justify his coup to Catelyn. It's a fool's law, wouldn't you agree? Why the oldest son and not the best fitted? The crown will suit me as it never suited Robert and would not suit Stannis. As with Stannis' lines like kings have no friends, I think some readers are taking Renly's little speech here too literally. Renly does not genuinely believe in a new system of government built around merit instead of primogeniture. How do I know that? Because Renly draws his power from the Tyrells, not the people en masse, and the Tyrells have no interest in shaking up the status quo to that extent. Why would they? How would that possibly benefit them? Mace wants the security of his eldest grandson on the Iron Throne, propping up Tyrell power in the Reach from afar. He does not care if they are best fitted. Marjorie's presence at Renly's side during his march up the Rose Road ex- exposes his lie here. Why was she there? She was there to produce an heir, to keep primogeniture going. If Renly was genuinely putting forward a new system of government here, why would the crown have to stay within the Baratheon family at all? What if there's someone out there better suited to it than Renly? Shouldn't it go to them? 
But of course, that's not what Renly's proposing, because he doesn't want a better system of government. He wants to be in charge of the current one. He'll say whatever he needs to along the way as he changes his banner wherever he goes. He is a Rorschach blot, the idea of a good king. No substance. Saying the crown should go to the best man is just Renly's way of saying that's him. Imagine the arrogance it takes to <laughs> compliment yourself at length like that. Just list all the ways in which you are awesome. I mean, I've never done that personally, so I wouldn't know. I've done it when I'm like drunk or trying yeah. to impress someone, but then I feel bad about it. It's not how I just talk. <laughs> and this is how Renly just talks. It's it's really annoying. I mean, yeah, I, if I was around someone like that, I would just be like, I, please... Please go away. You can see the wheels turning in Renly's brain as he finesses his messaging to his right to the throne to Catelyn. As you were saying, like he, as you say, he thinks he's better suited. But consider the scene from Renly's point of view, as awful and as stomach churning as it is. He's just witnessed Catelyn start to put together and heard her say that Stannis is actually Robert's heir. So he becomes a quite fervent believer in magnetic primogeniture. While he lives, that line you pointed out. You could see Renly working brand new themes and messaging for the future of his kingship. Cersei's children are bastards born of incest, which made Stannis the heir, but he died very tragically. Who did it? And it brings <laughs> me no pleasure to report that I am now the true king. It is the ancient Andal custom, after all. This is the insidious side of Renly. He can shift almost immediately to whatever reason supports what he wants to do. Law, ethics, neither of them constrain him. Ambition and his will to power are the only constraining factors for Renly. In my opinion, that's the political primordial ooze from which tyrants and mad kings crawl out of. So, mm, Well said, sir. And Catelyn points out the flaw. Is Renly ever going to act on these wonderful things he's saying about himself? Because he lacks humility. And if you don't have humility, what you end up doing is just saying wonderful things about yourself. <laughs> So the depression and weariness that increasingly define Catelyn's chapters settles heavily on her shoulders now. She has failed. This is death's domain. And so it's fitting that all she wants is to go home and say farewell to her father before he dies. I have failed Rob as I failed Ned. Poor dead Ned. She's surrounded by disappointment and death. But Renly won't let her leave. He forces her to stay and bear witness to the battle, to watch Stannis die so as to send a message to her son. And I find it hard to understand how anyone still swallows Renly's image after this. This reveals what a callous power play his campaign is and has always been. Catelyn came south to bring a message of peace. Renly corrupts her presence, insisting that she bear back home the message of war, the message of death. The theme of watching, of bearing witness, is a constant one throughout Catelyn's story, like Hoster said to her when she was a kid. Did you watch for me? Did you, little cat? Renly is twisting that theme around. Bearing witness here is not the stable core of Catelyn's identity, but a burden she must bear. You have to watch me kill my brother. Why is Renly doing this to her? Because again, Renly is threatened by the possibility that Catelyn believes Stannis and will convince Rob to believe Stannis as well. He not only wants to silence the truth about the twincest by killing Stannis, he wants Catelyn, specifically, to be intimidated into complicity with that silence. So like Stannis before him, Renly threatens Rob's life to his mother's face. Rob will know what befalls rebels from the fate of Stannis. How dare Renly refer to both Stannis and Rob as rebels, like he's the obvious rightful established king and they're the traitors. The irony here, of course, is that by forcing Catelyn to stick around, Renly ensures that she will bear witness to his death, not Stannis's. Catelyn knows as she thinks to herself that the Baratheon brothers will drown each other in blood, 
but she's not going to learn how literal that is until Catalan 4. And all she can do in the meantime, as she tells her men at the end of the chapter, is pray. Well, we saw in Catlin 2, where Renly takes Catelyn up to the top of the tower and is showing her all of his vast hosts and his massive army. And he says, basically, I mean to be king over one united kingdom, not a broken kingdom. I can say it no plainer than that. So what Renly is doing there, he puts a very thin camouflage over it, but what he is doing is threatening Rob's life. Here, he makes it much more explicit because we're seeing the mask is slipping off of Renly. But the mask, too, was never really a part of Stannis. Stannis is the same today, yesterday, a thousand years ago, forever. And Renly here is metaphorically, he's aiming for Stannis's jugular. He's smiling and he seems pleased that his Lord's Bannerman wanted to be battle and war. But it's really not quite so metaphorical for Stannis. Where does Stannis's shadow sword enter Renly? Find out in two weeks... But it's the throat, guys. It goes right through the throat. <laughs> Nicely said, sir. I look forward to that almost as much as you. And I think that about uh, wraps us up for the depth of A Clash of Kings, Catalan 3. Moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork, we have the question arising here of Lysa's motives and how honest she's being. Catalan brings that up, saying she wrote a letter accusing the queen, but then later she said it was Tyrion who killed Jon Arryn. These questions will keep popping up in Catalan chapters. But Lysa herself stays off stage until after Catalan is dead, until Sansa becomes our new POV on the veil in A Storm of Swords, where she learns the truth. Lysa poisoned Jon Arryn and framed the Lannisters on Littlefinger's behalf. And she learns this, of course, right before Littlefinger tosses his new wife out the moon door to her death. This is one of the legendary twists in A Song of Ice and Fire. And, you know, it's, 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 it's really buried deep, but there are a lot of hints for it when you go back. I love the twist that it was Lysa and Littlefinger behind Jon Arryn's death. It's a twist that works really effectively. It's not just a rabbit out of the hat, because when you go back into the narrative, you can see all the ways that George is seeding this twist into, into the story. And as we know from a few chapters before, if we're reading these in the chronological order, Pycelle has revealed to Tyrion that he really didn't have any plans or didn't and didn't have anything to do with at least John Aaron's initial poisoning. So it, then you're kind of like looking at this and you're like, wait a minute. So if I'm putting this together, so wait, Stannis thinks it was actually, you know, Cersei who did it, but Cersei's crony is under threat of torture is saying that she, that she had no part of it. So who's actually telling the truth here? And of course, then you have to look at who's benefiting from all the chaos and war that is sown. And that of course is going to be Littlefinger as Lysa reveals very dramatically at the end of the Storm of Swords arc. Final piece of a little foreshadowing groundwork here is that Renly asks Loras to stay and pray with him in his tent. Is this is this is just one of George's subtle hints that Renly and Loras are in love and likely had one final sex session before the Shadow Baby arrived. And because we're extremely fair, as everyone knows, we're extremely fair on the Not a Gast podcast. Both men deserve love one final time before Renly's untimely who did it demise, right? Yeah, well said. I agree. I mean, Renly's relationship with Loras has always been for me like the, you know, the the shining heart of Renly's character, the one thing I really do like about him. And it comes back later when Loras has that wonderful romantic line about why he's not looking for anyone else. When the sun has set, no candle can replace it. And he says he hid Renly's body away, buried it somewhere, you know, hidden on Storm's End that Renly had showed him. That's, you know, that's the stuff that makes me sympathize with Renly. I don't I don't like what he does with power. I don't like how he carries himself or deals with Stannis at all. But that that real sweetness between him and Loras, that, that, that peach juice, you know. That is that is really sad and does does make me uh, feel bad about him dying. Not for him, but on, like on Loras's behalf. 
So, moving on to our discussion portion for the episode. Obviously, this whole chapter sets up this big battle between Renly and Stannis that's going to happen. Renly's got his army, and Stannis has got his, and a first-time reader, like, oh, how is it going to go? It looks like Renly's going to smash Stannis. Maybe Stannis has something up his sleeve. And boy, the Stannis does have something up his sleeve, but it has nothing to do with the battle. It is, of course, the Shadow Baby that cuts the need for the battle short, and we never do get a battle at Storm's End between the forces of Renly and Stannis Baratheon. But... Since uh, you know so much about the military side of things, I thought it would be fun to kind of let you loose on what the Renly Stannis <laughs> battle would have actually looked like if it had happened. If Melisandre, if like a rock had fallen on Melisandre's head that day, what would this battle have looked like? I, I'm basically from Independence Day. I'm the uh, the scientist with like the coils around his neck saying like, release me, release <laughs> me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So the, the battle that never was, the Battle of Storm's End of 299. Uh this is actually one of those, you know, I was, I've typically talked about how I don't really like a lot of what if scenarios, but this one I like, and I think you understand for reasons we'll, we'll unpack by the end of this, this episode, because I think this is, uh, this battle is, is one of the more interesting ones and it does kind of come up. It has some ramifications for the wins winner. We'll get there. So upfront, we should, you know, admit that we only know for sure the shape of Renly's battle plans, at least the points that he lets Catelyn hear. And meanwhile, we can really only theorize about what Stannis was planning, given the hints that we see in this chapter and in Catelyn's fourth chapter and what Stannis later relates to Davos in his second chapter. So that being said, Renly is gleeful about giving Stannis battle, and Stannis states to Davos that he should have been awake and armored for battle, but couldn't be roused due to having the terrible nightmares. Hmm, why was he having terrible nightmares? We'll talk about that. So we should take Stannis' statement with a grain of salt, as we'll discuss in Davos' second chapter, but seemingly at some level Stannis was preparing for battle. So let's talk about the dispositions of the forces, Renly's and Stannis's. Renly's first. So Renly has 8,750 high lords, knights, and squires all mounted, leaving the bulk of his army and infantry, lesser lords, and a fair number of his cavalry behind a bitter bridge. We do know that he left some of his cavalry behind because Mace Tyrell is there, along with Garland Tyrell, and many of them do ride with Tywin at the Blackwater. In that all-cavalry force, Renly's army kind of resembles Robb Stark's force, which is currently wrecking shit in the Westerlands. And the makeup of that force factors into Renly's plan to attack Stannis. But let's talk about Stannis' army first. Renly states that Stannis' army is maybe 5,000 strong at best and comprised of mostly infantry with 400 light horse, which are primarily free riders with boiled leather. So what about the remaining 4,000 or so infantry that Stannis maybe has? To get... A bit nitty-gritty here, the Clash of Kings prologue has Crescent witnessing sellsword captains, so that's some of the force, and at the Blackwater, Tyrion will see Celticar and Valerian spearmen, so that's another part of his force, but most importantly for our purposes, Crescent notes a lot of archers practicing at Dragonstone and feasting, quietly, always quietly, they cannot <laughs> feast very loudly in the presence of Stannis in that great hall at Dragonstone. Stannis will later man his ships on the Blackwater with lots of archers, with more archers on the south bank of the Blackwater that march up with his army from Storm's End. So, my theory, I think that Stannis' Stannis army had a lot of archers, and I find that really, really interesting. All right, let's talk about Renly's plan. So, Renly divides his army in a fairly standard battle formation. Renly himself will command the right flank. The vanguard will be commanded by Loras Tyrell. He'll be out front. Bryce Cairn will have the left flank. Mathis Rowan will have the center. And Eldon Estremont will command the reserve. So with an all-cavalry force, as we think, and nearly 4-1 to one odds, perhaps even as close to 5-1 to one odds, Renly's plan seems to be a frontal attack led by Loris' vanguard at dawn. Renly confidently predicts that Loris' vanguard will destroy Stannis' army before the other elements of Renly's army can be decisively engaged, but I ain't too sure about that. The enemy, that is Stannis, always has a say on the battlefield. So... Let's talk about Stannis' potential battle plan. And again, just bear in mind that a lot of this is coming from theory. We don't actually get 
the truth, the ground truth of what Stannis was planning for the battle for the battle itself, but we can see the shape of what Stannis was planning. So first off, we don't have a precise battle order for Stannis or how he arranged his force in the field, but we do see some pretty interesting aspects of what Stannis was planning. For instance, remember all those felled trees we covered in part one of these, this analysis of, of Catelyn III and they were all being cut down? That may have not just simply been because Stannis was very fucking pissed at all of the things that were denied him, especially Storm's End. It may have had a tactical purpose too. The trees could have been cut down and then fashioned into wooden spikes, which Stannis could set out in front of his army to impede the speed and mobility of, of Renly's large cavalry force. Moreover, all of those tree stumps would also work to limit the speed with which Renly's army could quickly traverse the battlefield. Most importantly, and I have to admit this up front, most speculatively, Catelyn doesn't give us a full layout of the land around Storm's End, but the trees may have been cut down in such a way as to funnel Renly's larger army into a kill zone. So with Renly's cavalry force constrained in a kill zone, Stannis could then defeat Renly's army in detail, meaning that Stannis' creation of artificial obstacles would allow his smaller army to kill Renly's larger army in piecemeal. So meaning, it's kind of like breaks down even farther, Stannis wouldn't have to take on the brunt of Renly's 18,750 cavalrymen. He could take on a few hundred at a time that emerged from the woods and survived all the arrow fire that Stannis is, sitting on, is, that Stannis is launching on Renly. And in that kill zone, all those archers that Stannis perhaps has would then have been firing arrows into the horde of knights now tightly packed together. And where would those knights be facing? To the east. And what rises to the east and sets in the west? It ain't Quentin. Hey, it's the sun. And as Randall Tyler would point out in Catelyn 4, he'd have us charged the teeth of the rising sun. We'll be half blind. So Renly may not care how seasoned of a warrior Stannis thinks he is, but boy, his men sure do. And I think that leads to the great what if. What if a battle had actually been fought between Renly and Stannis at Storm's End? The battle, I think, would have probably gone down in a similar fashion as described as Stannis' battle plan. I don't think that Renly's battle plan was more than just basically throw everyone at Stannis at the same time and hope that Loras's vanguard smashes through Stannis' army. But as we can see here, the mobility that Stannis could have offered was not, uh, was not, was, would have been impeded by the obstacles that Stannis had put forward. And that's uh, that, that's basically how I think the battle would have happened. And that's interesting, I guess. It's a good AU. It's interesting what if for, for the battle itself. But there are something that makes it, you know, makes it more interesting to me than simply being a what if scenario. And that is that George, I think, is connecting some of the stuff and the residue that he had from this battle to the Winds of Winter in two specific cases. So there's two battles. One is confirmed and one theorized where George has used or potentially will use elements from the Battle of Storm's End that never was. First, Barristan at the Battle of Fire in Marine. He launches an attack against the Yonkish slave army in Giscari legions at dawn. During the battle, Barristan immediately aims his cavalry force at one of the Giscari legions, but then sees an opportunity and changes the direction of his attack, as recounted by a Westeros.org user who was there when George was reading this chapter in 2013 at Worldcon. But Barristan sees that they will be blind because the dawn rising over the city and like to break ranks easily. So Barristan turns away from the legion guarding the trebuchet at the last minute and heads for the Herons. Recalling that this is precisely what Mathis Rowan and Randall Tarley are warning Renly about, it does feel like George kept this one in his back pocket for a rainy day, a sunny day outside the gates of Marine. Secondly, second part of the battle portion of it is Young Grift and Agincourt. So first, this whole idea of using unchivalrous tactics to win battles is something that George has explored in The Song of Ice and Fire, but I think he has at least one more idea up his sleeve come The Wind's Winter and probably beyond. In The Wind's Winter, we have a potential callback to the would-be Battle of Storm's End of 299 in the form of Young Grift and the Golden Company versus the Tyrell army riding in from King's Landing. 
Like Storm's End from A Clash of Kings, in Winds, we will have a larger and largely mounted force of chivalrous knight, chivalrous knights versus a largely dismounted force of seltzer archers and spearmen and elephants. Harry Strickland ain't going to let any of you motherfuckers forget about his fucking elephants, dude. And then in The Wind's Winter, they're going to come to some sort of engagement, as has been stated by Arianne's second chapter in The Wind's Winter. And I think this will be the end of the Knights of Summer, as John Connington, Young Grift, and the Golden Company will use archers armed with golden heart bows and disciplined spearmen to, dis- to decimate Mace Terrell's army. And this episode is kind of running a little bit long, so I won't detail the full theory here, but I did write about this several years ago in an essay series I had called Blood of the Conqueror, and as part seven, Agincourt. So... I think that George R. R. Martin took a lot of these elements from the would-be Battle of Storm's End and is now utilizing them in the Winds of Winter. So come next week, or the week after that, we are likely going to see a reprise of Storm's End of 299, this time in 301, with Young Grift, outside of Storm's End, and with Barrison Selmy, outside of Marie. So well said, man. That was great going into the, both covering the tactics of it and then seeing how George has, like, taken bits and pieces of that and used it elsewhere because, you know, why waste any part of the narrative animal, so to speak? You know, got to always use those spare parts for something. I think that's exactly what happened. And it's so interesting to think about that stuff in terms of the character dynamics because, like, it's not till the Stannis-Renly conversation is over that Catelyn tells us how Renly fucked up in coming here. Like, on this this mad dash with his knights and freeriders leaving all his his, his uh, wagons and supplies behind. He has to come to battle sooner or starve. And you go, oh, suddenly Renly doesn't seem quite as strong as he did a second ago. He doesn't seem as invincible. And I think that's supposed to cue the reader into thinking, oh, is he actually going to win this battle? Or is Renly going to blow all the advantages it seems he has? Like, same with, like, putting Loras Tyrell in charge of the vanguard. Like, I, I, I know you guys are in love. But Randall Tarleys is sitting right there. <laughs> and I loathe Randall, but he's one of the best generals in Westeros. He's clearly the best general that Renly has. Loras has never seen battle. Am I right about that? Like, when would he have? Uh, it's, it's, it would be his first battle would be the Battle of Storm's End. And a lot for most of these guys would be too, because Catelyn notes in Catelyn 2 that they were babies in Robert's Rebellion. And they were like 10-year-olds at the during the Greyjoy Rebellion. So these guys are all 18, 19, 20 years old or younger than from, in the form of Loras. So yeah, this is this would be the first battle for most of them. And that's you know, that's something that, that we maybe should emphasize a little bit is that a lot of these folks the only battles they fight are Blackwater, maybe Duskendale. That's it. I mean it's it's not a, it's not a long repertoire the same way the Golden Company could just list off multiple campaigns that these guys have been in and they do that with all the decorations they adore. Is it their spears that they get or like a a piece of gold a gold ring? It's a gold ring for every year they serve with the Golden Company, right? And uh, so that does kind of differentiate them. And that does differentiate them, too, from Stannis' army here out, outside of Storm's End. A lot of these guys seemingly are a little bit older, more experienced. A lot of these guys are veterans of Robert's Rebellion, too. And look who's the, you know, who's the last person in Renly's camp that Catelyn talks to in this chapter. It's not Renly himself. It's Robar Royce, a man mm. who is very much like his king, as Catelyn thinks, and says, you know, Rob is wiser than you both, even though he's younger. And Robar Royce stands in for exactly that that. That mindset that makes the Knights of Summer who they are. They think they're invincible. They think war is a game. Renly thinks he can just automatically win this along with his glorious shining boyfriend. And yeah, I think the odds are in his favor in terms of numbers. He has the cavalry. But I think George is putting these hints in there to suggest that Renly is overconfident. Mm-hmm. And that maybe even if it weren't for the Shadow Baby, maybe he would have messed this up too. And I think that's there to show you really how much that big army is worth. You know, it looks great when you're coming up the Rose Road. You can intimidate everyone. You're the big shadow on the wall. But when it comes to you know, pedal hits the metal, iron hits the fire. You actually got to put it into use. It turns out Renly is not the best at that. And I think that's very interesting. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think 
and it's also just a narrative trope too when you like take set all the tactics and the strategy and George is, is not like a, a general writing a, a set of fiction books. He's a fiction author writing a set of military stories and in, 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 in certain chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. If you have the larger army and you seeming and you seem invincible on the battlefield, the common narrative trope is that the army is going to end up losing the battle. Think about the orcs at, at Helm's Deep or the orcs outside of Minas Tirith or the Boltons outside of Winterfell. You know, all the orc forces that would possibly be coming together. Into, <laughs> but I do think it also speaks to this kind of arrogance that Renly has and that other fo- folks have. And what and that having that arrogance also come up short against someone who knows better. And Stannis knows better here at 299, likely knows better, as we don't know for sure. And the Golden Company definitely knows better too, come 301 AC. And ultimately, it means that all of these ideals, if you want to call them that, of Renly, the optics of chivalry, are all the, these, this idea of the Knights of Summer, they're all going to come crashing down at the business end of a spear or an arrow or, I guess, trampled underfoot by an elephant. And I think that's ultimately some of the stuff that George is doing in the narrative with speaking about how these ideas and these, these ideals and these elements of warfare that the ruling class of Westeros that the knightly class of Westeros have all imbibed, have all imbued upon themselves. They all fall short when it comes to the sharp point of a spear, sword, or arrow. Mm, beautifully put, sir. It doesn't doesn't help you up against death. And, you know, Stannis stands in for death in a lot of ways, both, both awesome and terrifying. He is the stranger indeed. So I think that about wraps us up finally for A Clash of Kings Catlin 3. I hope you guys have all enjoyed this. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcast. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of IceandFire.wordpress.com. You want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Stetson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, and Septon Merrifull Head Affair. Thank you so much to all of our high lords and ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks very, very much. We really appreciate your support. So, join us next week as we stay right here at Storm's End for a Clash of Kings Catelyn 4, in which Catelyn prays to her gods for guidance. And this is once more going to be a two-parter, folks. We're going to do the first half of Catelyn 4, I think probably break around uh, right before Renly dies, leave, leave you all <laughs> thirsting for it, or leave Jeff thirsting for it anyway, and then come up. back come back with the part two the next week and uh, deal with Renly's death and the immediate aftermath, like Catelyn getting Brienne away and all the, the big hullabaloo in, in Renly's camp. So, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll work it out as we write, but that's what we're looking at right now, and we just we can't wait to spend more time in these Storm's End Catelyn chapters with you and doing them live. It's just a, a great time. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our patrons for supporting us, and we will see you guys next time.